start something new. Obviously, we're in a new part of our journey. We're, this is a, a relocation phase, and um, really, I want to take this relocation time to be a time of reformation, too. Um, I read a verse not too long ago in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 18 and 19. It says, Behold, I will do a new thing. And uh, I, I believe that God really wants to do a new thing around us. You know, we're, we're positioned here in Castle Rock. This is the first Adventist church in Castle Rock, which is a pretty awesome thing. Uh, but he's repositioned us here in this spot in the community, I think, so that we can have a, a broader impact. And I know that God wants to do amazing things around us, but the reality is that when we seek for God to do things around us, it usually starts by God doing things within us. You follow me? The revival and the reformation that we want to see around us, the transformation that we, that we long to see around us, we, you know, it's, it's often easier to see how others need to change, but God wants to start within us first. And so this morning, we're starting a new series, and the series is, is, is simply entitled 316. 316. Can you guess what we're going to be studying in this series? Yeah, yeah. It's that famous scripture, John chapter 3, verse 16. We're in pursuit of revival and we're going to go to the bedrock of what I believe to be ground zero of personal transformation, of personal conversion and seeking God. So why? Why are we going to John 3? Why are we going to look at this one verse that we can all, maybe most of us can, can even recite um, just, just at the drop of a hat? Why are we going to look at this single verse? I want to share something with you that I found in the book, Desire of Ages. Um, I don't know if, if you can actually see this or not, but I'll read it. It says this, in the interview with Nicodemus. So this is the, the interview of John chapter 3. In the interview with Nicodemus, Jesus unfolded the plan of salvation and his mission to the world. This is a one-on-one -on -one interview at night. He unfolded the plan of salvation, how he's going to save the world. But notice this. In none of his subsequent discourses did he explain so fully, step by step, the work necessary to be done in the hearts of all who would inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty incredible. I mean, you look through the Gospels and you find a lot of times where Jesus is teaching, where Jesus is preaching, and you wonder, which of these sermons, which of these discourses did Jesus really unfold how he works in the heart, how it is that people are converted, how it is that people experience transformation? Desire of Ages tells us right here in this interview with Nicodemus, right there, that's where Jesus does it, step by step. So maybe you've wondered, how can I experience a new life? How can I experience conversion? I mean, we talk about conversion and transformation, and sometimes we take it for granted that we understand how to experience transformation, how to have a new heart and a new life. But what if we don't? What if we don't understand it? Where can we go to find a step-by-step -step manual? Apparently, we can go to John chapter 3. All right? So that's why we're going there. We're going to go, and we're looking at this loaded chapter and that most famous verse for the next few weeks. And really what we're going to do is we're going to break down John 3.16, phrase by phrase, starting today. So maybe if you can, go ahead and recite it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 3, 16. I always like to kind of tag that. Wow, it's beautiful even just to say it together. For God so loved the world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, 
We're asking today that you would reveal something about yourself. Even through familiar words, do it in an unfamiliar way. You are a consuming fire, and sometimes we don't even know how to approach you. And so today, sin-sick as we are, we're coming before this throne of grace, asking to obtain mercy in our time of need. Would you please give us the mercy of your word? Speak to us about the heartbeat of God. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and find it with me. John chapter 3. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. John chapter 3 is where we're going. We're going to, obviously, like I said, we're going to look at verse 16 all throughout this month. But just a little bit of context before we get there. It's a nighttime conversation with a man named Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a teacher of the law. He's a ruler of the Jews. By the time we get to verses 14 through 16, where, where we find these red letters, you know, for God so loved the world. By the time we get to that spot, Jesus and Nicodemus, their conversation has been central, or it's been uh, revolving around one central question. And that question is, how can a man be born again, right? Jesus has kind of kicked off this conversation with Nicodemus. Hey, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, even you, a Pharisee, a ruler, someone who's been brought up in this, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be born again. And so Nicodemus is asking, how in the world does this happen? One of Jesus' answers is, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Just like the wind, you can't really see it, but you know when it's there because you see the effects, right? You see the fruit. So it is, the, the work of the Holy Spirit is the one who brings about this miracle of conversion. And still Nicodemus is confused. When you get to verse 9, John chapter 3 and verse 9, I'm reading from the New King James. If you're there, say amen. All right. John 3 verse 9, the Bible says, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Jesus chides him a little bit kind of slaps him around <laughs> no, gently. Uh, he says, hey, don't you know these things? Verse 11, most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then in verse in verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man. It's a messianic title, right? No one's come down from heaven except the Son of Man. And then notice that the Messiah does not just come down from heaven, but there's another Nicodemus' question. How can this be? How can someone actually experience conversion? How can someone be born again? Jesus answers it by reminding him of a story. Verse 14, the Bible says, And as Moses lifted up the what? The serpent in the where? In the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Do you know this story that Jesus is referencing right here? He's referring to a wilderness story. It's recorded in Numbers chapter 21. It's a time when the the Israelites, as they're wandering from Egypt to the promised land, it's a time in which... It's a time in which they they have uh, gotten a little bit of an attitude problem with God. A rebellious uh, moment, which happened to be repeated often. <laughs> and, and the result of their rebellious attitude is that uh, God's protection is, is withdrawn. 
And there are fiery serpents, Numbers 21 says, fiery serpents that end up biting the children of Israel. It's actually a very scary scene. And God tells Moses to make a a bronze serpent, to lift it high on a pole in the midst of the entire camp so that everyone who is wounded and dying can fix their eyes on it and experience healing and life. To many in the children of Israel, it's a ridiculous notion. Why should I look at the very thing that just bit me? Why should I look at something, you know, this, this is not some miracle drug. This is not a pill. This is not some anti-venom or whatever. Why look at the, to, to many it was ridiculous, but to those who believed, it was salvation, right? And so Jesus says that the mission of the Son of Man, the one who came down from heaven, would have a similar mission, not just to come down, but to be lifted up. To be lifted up, just like that serpent was. To be lifted high, not in our praises and esteem, but to be lifted high, not on a pole, but a cross, so that those who are stricken by sin, the fiery bite of the serpent, can be healed. To some, it's ridiculous. Why would I look at someone who is defeated on a cross? Why would I look at someone who is bearing the weight of sin and its curse? But it really is salvation to those who believe. Do you follow today? Yes or no? Yeah? This is what Jesus is saying. Hey, Nicodemus, you want to understand how to experience a new heart? It starts by looking at the Son of Man, not as someone who is in heaven, but it starts by looking at the Son of Man who is lifted high on a cross. And for Nicodemus, you've got to realize that for Nicodemus, this was shocking. This is pretty incredible for him. This probably took a moment. Are you serious? The Messiah that he grew up thinking about was a Messiah who would come down and stomp down the Roman Empire. But the Messiah that Jesus is revealing is someone who would come down and be lifted high on a Roman tool of torture. Nicodemus' bewilderment is, I mean, it's, it's audible. There aren't any words here to describe it. But I, I truly believe that it's here in this silence where Nicodemus is just kind of chewing on this that chapter 3, verse 16 comes. You know, I think Jesus lays the bomb in verses 14 and 15. Hey, the Son of Man must be lifted high. So those who believe in him should not perish, right? In verse 15, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I feel like there's this pause there between verse 15 and 16 and Nicodemus is just like shaking his head. Now this, I don't know what you're talking about, man. This can't be in the moment. The Messiah is supposed to come down and and stomp down everybody else. But John chapter 3, verse 16 breaks the silence of Nicodemus' head scratching. John 3.16, I don't know if you realize this, but what's the very first word of John 3.16? Four. It's an explanation, right? Jesus is launching into an explanation. This is why. This is why. For God so loved the world. Those famous words weren't spoken in a vacuum, but to someone who is trying to understand how anyone could experience a new life by looking to a crucified Messiah. That's what he's explaining. Well, th- let me tell you what. Let me tell you more about it, Nicodemus. It's an explanation. For God so loved the world. It's an explanation of the scandalous reality of the cross. <laughs> and it's an explanation of love. That's it. Why? How can this be? Because God loves. Because God loves. For God so loved the world. Question. 
This might sound like an elementary song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But let me ask you, have you heard the heartbeat of God lately? Do you know that God loves you? Is that, is that uh, too much to ask here? I mean, I know that we're, we're, we're familiar with this idea, but have you heard the heartbeat of God lately? It beats with love. It beats with a love that's completely foreign. And as one Christian book title calls it, it's crazy love. <laughs> Today, uh, I just want to look at this phrase, for God so loved the world that he gave. just want to look at this phrase and just kind of pick out three outrageous realities of God's love. Can we do that today? Really simple. For God so loved the world that he gave. And so first quality, God's heart beats with an everlasting love. God, God's heart beats with an everlasting love. The reality that we just kind of, uh, just I don't know if that was new information to you. The first word of John chapter 3, verse 16, it's the word for. It's an explanation. For God so loved. In other words, if the love of God is the explanation, the love of God is not the effect. Did you hear that? If the love of God is an explanation, the love of God is a cause, not an effect. There's a difference. Taco Bell serves up some yummy food, and I love my seven-layer burrito because it tastes good. Do you follow that? I love it because of the value or pleasure I receive from it. That kind of love is an effect, but God's love is the cause. That's why we're saying that God's love is everlasting. For God so loved the world. In other words, God's love uh, is not a reaction to something. It's a divinely initiated action. God didn't need convincing. God didn't need a reference check or a recommendation. His arm wasn't twisted into it. God just loved. There was nothing we could do to earn it. Nothing we could do to deserve it. Nothing we could do to stir it. Nothing we could do to cast it away. God's heart beats with an everlasting love. His love came first. It didn't come as a result of something else. It's everlasting. It's enduring throughout eternity future, throughout eternity past. And I think that's what Jeremiah is talking about. In Jeremiah 31, verse 3, the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, yes, I have loved you with a what kind of love? An everlasting love. And everlasting, when I, when I think about the word everlasting, usually I'm thinking from here on, it's going to endure, you know, through the present, through the future. But could it be, look, the Lord has appeared of old to me, like from the past, that God's love is everlasting, not just in the, in the future, but it outlasts me even in the past. That God's love was first. That God's love was first. Before we lived, he loved. Before we looked to him, he looked on us. It's foreign to us in our human experience, I think. The distinction of God's love is simply this, that it is not contingent upon the object's value. God's love is not contingent upon the object's value or behavior or decisions. But God's love does place value on the object, right? God's love does transform behavior and decisions of this object. Do you follow me? I and mean, this, is, this is pretty incredible when you think about it. Um, it, it, it maybe it's, 
it'll take a while to, to, to land, but turn with me in your Bibles. So keep a bookmark here, John 3.16. I know you feel like you've got it all tucked away in your memory, but go ahead and keep it in there. Uh, Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. This concept of God, God's love being everlasting, I think is, yeah, it's something that for me takes a while for it to really sink in. Deuteronomy chapter 7. When you're there, say, I found it. All right. Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. In verse 7 of that chapter, um, God is, is kind of communicating a message of affirmation about the people of Israel before they get into the promised land. He reminds them that they're a chosen people. But notice what 7.7 7 says. All right. Deuteronomy 7 verse 7. The Bible says this. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. For those parents among us, have you ever had your your son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter come up to you and and ask you why they love you or why you love them, I should say? I remember asking my mom that. I don't remember the answer that I got. (laughs) But I mean, what would you say if your child ran up to you and said, why do you love me? I mean, is there really a reason? Well, it's because you pick up your room every day. Thank you so much. I love you because of that. Is there, re- I mean, it, it's as if the children of Israel are running up to God. Why do you love us? And, and God is saying in verse 7, hey, God, I, I didn't set my love upon you because you were more than all the other nations. I didn't set my love upon you because you spoke better, langu- uh, better Hebrew than all the other nations. No, uh, I didn't set my love upon you because of this. But then notice in verse 8 how God kind of, changes the answer around. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's as if they're asking, why do you love us? And God says, no, I didn't love you because of A, B, or C but it's because I just love you that I did all these things for you. God turns the question from his love being an effect to his love being the cause. No, 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 no. There's nothing that you can do to make me love you. I just do. The closest thing that I could possibly come to imagining this kind of love is what it felt like to hold my firstborn for the first time. In that hospital room. Someone told me, like a couple of weeks before Jenna was born, uh, you're going to be surprised by two things. One, you're going to be surprised by how angry you can get. (laughs) Anyways, that was my brother. He was being realistic with me. But he also said this. No, it was actually a different friend who said the other thing. You're going to be surprised by how much you can love. By how much you can love. And I remember holding Jenna for the very first time and loving her. Not because of how pretty her cry was. Not because of how, how cute her wrinkled nose was. But just because. Just because. Do you follow? When God's heart beats for you, it beats not because you've done this, that, and the other. God's heart beats for you and me just because. God's heart beats with an everlasting love. Do you believe that this morning? God's heart beats with an everlasting love. All right, back to John 3.16. What else does God's heartbeat sound like? 
In John 3.16, the Bible says, For God so loved, what? The world. The world. I want us to see here that, that when God loves, he doesn't just love a few, but he loves all. He loves the world. So God's heart not only beats with an everlasting love, but God's heart beats with an ever-seeking love. An ever-seeking love. Always on pursuit. Always on mission. It's a love that has a mission. To seek not just a few, but the entire world. You know, in the beginning, when God created humanity, He created us to be in face-to-face communion with Him, right? He created us to have personal FaceTime with Him, original FaceTime with Him to have relationship with him that was unbroken. But because of our sin, because of our rebellion, it was our iniquity, it was our sins that separated us from that face-to-face oneness with the creator. And actually, if you go back to that very first fall in Genesis chapter 3, you can turn in your Bibles there too. Genesis 3, we see that God is a seeking God. His love beats with an ever-seeking love, even from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. When you're there, say, Amen. All right, Genesis 3, verse 8 and 9. The Bible says, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. I'm sorry, I'm reading chapter 2. Chapter (laughs) 3. All right, this is after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife did what? hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is really interesting to me. The very first response, the very first human response was a response of shame and fear, running, right? It was a response of movement, but it was movement away from God. But do you know what God's first response was? It was movement towards us. God didn't just, all right, they're they're off. Let them stay in their corner. God immediately walked in the garden towards them in the cool of the day. And in verse 9, he initiates conversation even when they were hiding. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? It's not that God didn't know, but it's that he wanted us to know. Where are you? Well, I'm obviously not in the presence of God, but God is seeking me anyway. God's heart beats with an ever-seeking love. And this, this theme of God who is constantly moving towards us, constantly seeking after us, this theme is woven all throughout Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Even, you know, when, when, when the sides are, are becoming complete and Babylon has fallen, he even still says, come out of her, my people. This is a God who is ever-seeking after you and I. In Luke chapter 15, I love that passage. Luke 15, there are three parables. You know, the the parable of the one sheep that leaves the 99, but there's a shepherd who runs after the one. Leaves the 99, actually, out in the countryside. And he is running after the one. There's another story in Luke 15 of a woman who has 10 coins, precious coins to her. She has nine of them, but has lost one. And so she tears her house upside down, sweeping, lighting things up to find the one. And then there's the father who has two precious sons. One of them just turns his back and leaves. Does the father go out? He doesn't physically. No, he stays at home, but he is on the porch waiting and watching. He's seeking. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says it very plainly, that the Son of Man has come to seek and save those who are lost. 
That's the heartbeat of God. It's a, it's a heart that, that beats with an everlasting love, but it's a heart that beats with an ever-seeking love. God so loved the world, which is actually, when you look at that, it's really incredible. There's a Greek word for world uh, that talks about this you know, physical earth, this globe, but that's not the word that's used here. When it says, for God so loved the world, the word is actually cosmos. It actually encompasses his seeking, pursuing, mission-running heart. It's actually not just on you and me. It's, it's for the entire cosmos. When God gave, it wasn't just for you and me. It was for the entire cosmos, unfallen worlds, his angels, the evil angels, to recognize, hey, who is this God who loves with an everlasting love, with an ever-seeking love? So God's heart beats with an everlasting love. God's heart beats with an ever-seeking love. But what else? God's heart beats with an ever-giving love. Back to John chapter 3. Back to John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave. That he gave. That he gave. Don't let it pass you by. This is not, this is not just, uh, oh man, don't let this be routine. The tangible expression of this everlasting and ever-seeking love of God is demonstrated and it's practically revealed in giving and in sacrificing. A couple of verses. The Apostle Paul, he, he makes this pretty clear. Um, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and did what else? And gave himself for me. Very interesting. The Apostle Paul links this idea that when God loves us, he gives not just gifts, not just money, not just blessings, but he gives himself. Okay. Again, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, when he's talking to husbands about how to love in the home, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So when the Apostle Paul is thinking about the love of God, this love is not just mushy-gushy Hallmark cards, I'll send you roses every now and then. This love gives himself. This love gives himself. That's why in Romans chapter 5, turn with me there. Romans chapter 5, New Testament. If you're in John, you go John, Acts, then Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. When you're there, say amen. All right. Verse 8, the Bible says, But God demonstrates manifests, expresses, reveals intangible action. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in what way? In that while we were still sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. This is how it's demonstrated. This is how we know. I mean, we can read about it. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. But the greatest way that we know the love of God, that it's everlasting and ever seeking, is the fact that it's ever giving. And that he's giving himself for you and for I. God's love is known and manifest and demonstrated in the laying down of his life for you and I. Powerful quote again, going back to Desire of Ages. If you've never read this book, I would encourage you to, to pick it up Sunday. A powerful biography of the life of Jesus. It says this, Satan with his fierce temptations wrung the heart of Jesus. In this page, it's page 753. 
753, Ellen White's talking about just Jesus' experience on the cross, in the darkness of Calvary, what he was experiencing as he hung there between heaven and earth. And it says that Satan, with his fierce temptations, wrung the heart of Jesus. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror. Think about this. Think about this. I mean, we, we've read the Gospels where Jesus is saying, you know, uh, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Right? Jesus knew that he was going to raise from the dead. Jesus knew he was going to be crucified, but he also knew that, his, that he was going to live again. But according to Desire of Ages, that on the cross, in the moment of experiencing and becoming sin for us, that you and I might become the righteousness of God, Satan's temptations were so fierce that Jesus could not see through the portals of the tomb. That the words that he had shared with his disciples, hey, uh, Peter, when you're converted, meet me on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. You know? <laughs> that all those things that he had promised to his disciples, that he had declared and prophesied about himself, he could not see it or feel it in that moment. Hope did not present to himself being a conqueror over the grave. And yet, when I read my Bible, in John chapter 19, it says that Jesus gave his final breath. That even though he couldn't see himself beyond the tomb, Hebrews chapter 12 says that, 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 says that he endured the cross, despising its shame for the joy that was set before him. He had something set before him. He saw something in heaven. He didn't see himself, but he saw you and I. And he was willing to give himself with that vision, a vision of heaven without him, but you and I are there. What? <laughs> That's an ever-giving love. If they can have life, you can take mine. Have you heard the heartbeat of God lately? <laughs> it beats with an everlasting love. It beats with an ever-seeking love. It beats an ever-giving love. If Jesus on the cross could not see through the portals of the tomb, then in a very literal sense, very literal sense, Jesus gave himself. He gave until there was nothing more to give. He gave and gave and gave again. So this is the love of God, the heartbeat of God. It beats with an everlasting love. It beats with an ever-seeking love. And it beats with an ever-giving love. You might call it an ever-sacrificing love. I don't know. That's a little too long for me. <laughs> so, when you listen for the heartbeat of God, what did you need to hear? What do you need to hear right now? Do you need to hear that God's love is everlasting, that he loved us long before and long after we could do anything to deserve it? Maybe there's someone here today that needs this assurance because maybe you're trying to pay God back or you're, you're trying to, to, to merit his favorite friend. It's already yours. God's love is not going to be an effect. It's always going to be the cause. He loved you before you and I could ever do anything about it. That's why 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Do you hear the heartbeat of God? Maybe you need to hear that God's love beats with, a, with an ever-seeking love. 
that it's on a mission to seek and save. Maybe you feel disconnected. Maybe you feel alienated from this God that you read about in Scripture, this God that you once knew before. Maybe you feel like, man, I have just lost my first love. I, I have this nagging sense of disconnect, and I don't even know how to get back. Or maybe it's become such a nagging disconnect that you've forgotten that you're disconnected. Take heart. The God who has been seeking his children from eternity past to eternity present, this God who has been seeking his children since the Garden of Eden has already been seeking after you. You're not sure how to get back. Don't worry. God is going to find you. God is going to find you. Just don't run the other way. Just turn home. Come back home. Believe today that God is seeking you. Believe today that he wants to restore oneness with you. Bring joy to the hosts of heaven by turning to the God who seeks. Do you hear the heartbeat of God? Maybe you need today to hear that God's love is an ever-giving love. Um, that his infinite love has given all for you. Maybe you felt unloved. Maybe you're still, you know, you're, you, you read about it in the Bible and you're saying, man, it says this, it says that, but I just don't feel loved by God. You've seen tokens or you haven't seen tokens in your life. You want to see evidences of God, God's love for you in your life. My simple response and appeal would just be, look to the cross. Look to the cross. When I became a new parent, this was several years ago, I remember pushing through the grocery store um, and for some reason I noticed every baby now <laughs> in the grocery store. I noticed every child. I noticed every parent. And I was, as I was going through the grocery store, I remember uh, kind of a, a fit that was happening between, uh, I don't know, maybe it was a four or five-year-old. And he said, Mommy's so mean. Oh, Mommy is so mean. And I remember just kind of passing by as a silent observer, and I heard the mom whisper, if you only knew. Not if you only knew how mean she was, but if you only knew how much I've given. I mean, this is a mom. I mean, for that baby to even be out of her tummy, she has gone through a lot, right? This is a mom who has given, who has probably laid a career on the side to take care of this boy. This is a mom who has given up everything, who has given countless hours of sleep, who has given many tears and lots of pain and struggle. This is a mom who has given, oh, if you only knew. See, sometimes I feel like we're, we're throwing a fit with God. Man, you're so mean. <laughs> Why didn't you do this? Why couldn't you be here? We conclude that God must not love me if, if this didn't happen or if that happened, then maybe we're looking at the wrong points of evidence. How do we know God's love, that God actually loves me? We can look to the cross. We can look to the cross. The Bible makes it clear. We know that God loves us by his laying down his life for us. I don't know if you realize this, but in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, that's what it says. We know love in that God laid his down life for his, laid down his life for us. In this new season, I pray that each and every one of us would hear the heartbeat of God. And if you want to, I just have a very specific appeal. Um, in a minute, the, the song team is going to sing for us, or we're going to sing together a, a song called The Love of God. But I, I just want to give us a specific challenge for this next week, maybe the next two weeks, to really seek to hear the heartbeat of God, um, to pray to hear the heartbeat of God. How many of you, 
You know, you, you, maybe you want to start a, a revived experience with Jesus. Maybe you're already experiencing a, a revived experience with Jesus. Maybe you're disconnected and you're not quite sure how to get back to a real relationship with God. But I just want to extend an appeal. Would you pray to hear the heartbeat of God? Does that make sense? Would you pray to hear God's love? For the next two weeks, take time each morning to pray to hear the heartbeat of God. How many of you would be willing to pray that prayer? God, cause me to hear your heartbeat today. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so if that's your desire, you want to pray that, I'm going to give you two verses, okay? Two verses, uh, be, besides John 3.16, okay? I mean, you can, you can take John 3.16 and say, for God so loved God free that he gave his only begotten. I mean, you don't say God free, you say your name. But <laughs> anyways, you, you, you personalize that verse. But I'm going to give you two other verses, and I think we have them on the screen here. Okay, uh, you can write them down, put them in your phone. Psalm 143, verse 8. And Psalm 42, verse 8. Man, I'm thinking of another one too, uh, but we'll, we'll keep it to this. Okay, Psalm 143, verse 8. This is really beautiful the way it says it. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. Simple prayer, yeah? Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. And then Psalm 42, 8. Uh, there's something about the morning, the start of the day. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. I think the NIV says that he'll direct his love towards us in the daytime. So these are two simple prayers. Make this your prayer throughout the week. God, cause me to hear your loving kindness this morning. God, you're going to direct your loving kindness to me. Please make me hear the heartbeat of God. It's simple enough, right? It may sound simple, but it requires great intentionality to actually ask God. Make me hear it. I want to hear your everlasting, your ever-seeking, your ever-giving love. That's it. Pray to hear it. Hear it in his word. Hear it in looking on the cross. Hear it in the daily circumstances he leads you through each day. If you write these verses down and just pray, God, cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. Is this your desire? You want to hear God's heartbeat over the next few weeks? Because when you do, you'll begin to experience, you'll begin to experience a new walk with Jesus. That conversion. How, how can these things be, Nicodemus said. How can a man be born again? Well, it starts by hearing the heartbeat of God. I'm going to invite the song team to come and lead us in this song, The Love of God.